welcome to Probably Therapy. That, that's Kendall Torrin. Oh, you did it. I did it. You did it. That's Ryan Johns. And we're here. <laughs> we are here. We're finally. back. <laughs> it's been it's been a while. We needed some like it, we needed we needed a break. We needed a minute. <laughs> if, if we're getting to we have two months until we graduate. So the ball is starting to roll. At less than no, two months exactly from today. Oh crap. Literally two months from today. We will be graduates. We will hopefully have diplomas. Yeah, hopefully. We have to get the next 60 days. <laughs> it's going to be a, a journey. A journey. The last three years have been a journey, and the next two months will be like... A sprint. <laughs> it's that thing where like, you know, have you ever heard of people talk about like, oh, when they run a... Mar- like, these are way- people who are far more motivated than me, but like people who run marathons... Uh-huh. And sometimes they'll say like, yeah, the last like couple miles, I just kind of blacked out and was just running. And then I, <laughs> whoa, like I came to, and I was like across the finish line and people were holding me. Yes. And I feel like that's, that's what's about to happen. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just like going through the motions a little bit, not in a bad way, just like doing the things, but not really thinking about it. 100%. I'm that's- like, oh, it's, it's class time again. Oh, Okay drive right. there on autopilot sit in class on autopilot <laughs> everything is just on autopilot yes life is just on autopilot at this point yes but we'll, Which, we're gonna walk across that stage and hopefully you know the heavens are gonna open up and it'll be a glorious day we will survive we will and then we will be um off in the world hopefully employed well i am employed good for you <laughs> you got to get on that how are the prospects looking have you uh, found any suitors yet um uh, still looking you gotta Have... you gotta up that dowry <laughs> right <laughs> oh man yeah see, the trick is you have to pay them to hire you oh i see i don't but I don't it's not bribery <laughs> it's not bribery it's totally different it's a totally it's... different thing <laughs> how the world works yes you just sell your soul to a company <laughs> and beg them to give you money you? yeah to keep you alive for the next 40 years and then they just like you're in a panic for a while because you're like oh, i'm gonna get fired i'm definitely gonna get fired and then you realize they don't fire you after a while and you're like oh maybe i'm maybe i'm okay does that feel like familiar like an experience for you i can't say i've ever been through that that's definitely (laughs) not me speaking from personal experience no not at all i can say i have my second um uh performance review this week oh because in my district i feel like i don't know if other districts do it this way your first two years in our district you have two performance reviews one in the fall one in the spring Mm -hmm. um so you do four in your first two years, and then you're on a three-year cycle until I think you you go through like a three-year cycle. Then you, after three years, you do one a year for the next three years. And then yeah. once you're like over, I think once you're over five years or something. Then you're good. Well, then you do like one every five years. Five years. Huh. I don't really know. I actually haven't gotten that far because... This is your first year. I'm in my first year. I'll, I'll <laughs> having to do two a year. Yes, yes. But I've got my. Well, I guess we should week. probably jump into some like real talk content here. I mean, look, I'm just trying to have some nice banter. Banter. I'm good at banter. myself, but look, if if you want to hop right in, let's let's hop let's hop in. We have actually gonna have a lot of banter tonight because our topic is we each. This was Kendall's idea, but he said, Ryan, you have to think of five things that you find interesting about psychology, mental health or mental health treatment. And, and you were like, like, I can't do that. That's impossible. I, like, I can't do it. Like you got like, let's, let's take it down to three. I'm like, five is so many. Like, I'm and I said, what did I say, Ryan? I said, <laughs> I said, no, because you're a graduate student. <laughs> And you can think of five things that you find interesting. And you did. He really, he really had to hype me up, guys. And then I sat down for like literally five minutes and wrote down like 20 things. 
Exactly. And so I had to I had to bring it all down, and and now I'm at five. But you just so, need a little a little nudge. Yeah, I need I needed to be hyped up a little bit, and I'm glad I'm glad you did because it, it really made me think about some really interesting things that I've learned over the past eight years studying. Well, and just quick detour. Detour into that. I feel like sometimes it's really important that we do that just in life, you know, because yeah. I feel like we go through we like we were just talking about like we kind of go through the motions and we kind of get lost in the day to day grind and take really? those like few minutes like every once in a while to like reflect and be like, OK, why am I doing this? Like, what are the things about my job, about my field that I find I'm excited interesting about. or that I'm excited yeah. about, that I'm passionate about and like. Why did I, like why are, did I get into this field? You know, yeah, like these are the things stuff. that if, if someone like on a plane that you just like randomly start talking to, like if somebody were to bring up something on this list, I'd be like, oh shoot, we're going to be talking a long time. Oh, like, man. let's go. <laughs> like, like let we're going to be pulling up I've journal got actually, articles. I've I mean, got my pocket projector <laughs> that I can pull yeah. out for you. Got a presentation all ready to go. Like this is the stuff you start nerding out about, right? Like. It's well, exciting. it's just the stuff that it's like you, I remember like even some of this stuff, like my very first one that I'll talk about is one that I heard, I think my junior year of high school in my AP psychology class. Mm. So this has so been a like, long thought. Yeah. It's just, it's just like that thing that like sparks an interest. And it's a thing that like you heard something in, in a class at one point and you were like, that's really freaking weird or that's super interesting yes and it's the thing that like pulls you in yeah but like yeah no I have one something on my list is similar I wrote like I've been thinking about it my whole time in undergrad and then my senior year I ended up writing a paper on it because I literally just couldn't like you had to get it out somewhere about it yeah yeah and it's just like taking a few minutes every once in a while to like reflect on that stuff and to remember it I think can be so helpful because it can kind of reignite that like curiosity and passion that I think so often we we find ourselves lacking when we're going through that day-to-day grind and when everything just feels like you know going through the motions so true so that's my that's my quick detour because you said you said something about that and I was like okay wait hold on that's actually like a really (laughs) profound thing and I feel like we need to so do you want to start with your um, I can start with my high school knowledge (laughs) Yeah, my my AP first site. one is the one that I, I heard in high school. So here's the thing. I don't know if I'm going to say this correctly because I think it's a Greek word. And I, I'm like weirdly nerdy about things. So I like to have the right terms for stuff. Like I'm that person that if I can't think of a, a saying or a, a name, but I know I know it, I will be thinking about it for days yes and so that's what like this one is for me like i had to i had to find the exact word for what i was trying to think of but my first one is called pareidolia again i don't know if that's right don't don't come for me if if i said that wrong to all of our greek listeners um but basically pareidolia is the i don't know what like you a phenomenon or a a experience I don't really know what to call it but like basically it's that our brains are hardwired to see and recognize faces right that's why like babies get really excited when they see their mom's face or their dad's face right they babies recognize when they're looking at a face versus when they're looking at like a doll or something and that's why like we we recognize faces in things that absolutely don't have faces like toast or clouds. <laughs> like we, we just have this, this it's like a, a biological, like a neurological hardwiring to recognize faces. And so the fun part of that is we see faces in things or we can like try to like visualize a face onto something that there clearly is no face, but the flip side of that is when we're looking at a face and something is slightly off with it, it can be like really weirdly disturbing for us, like really uncomfortable sometimes. So you can do this. You can Google like pictures of people with their eyes upside down or pictures of people, even pictures of people with their eyes like flipped 
or just like weird things or with their mouth upside down or weird things or what's the one there's one that's really common um where they take a face and they flip the head upside down but then they keep like certain like features of the face like the lips and eyes or something as if they're like the right side up and it like throws people off because they're looking at it and they're like, I don't like if this is messing with my brain because part of the face is the correct way and the other part of the face isn't the correct way. And I don't know what to what I'm looking at. Like, so I remember learning about that in my AP psychology class in high school and our teacher just like she had a slideshow of all these things. And it was the like most bizarre experience. Like everybody in my class was losing <laughs> their minds. Because it like was that one like, thing where it's like, I can't unlearn this. Like I will forever no. be shaped by this knowledge. Right. Like as soon as you, it's, it's a, yeah, it is that thing where like, as soon as you start noticing it, you notice it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so like for a while, like we, everybody That's one of mine. Like, pointing out faces yeah. all over and then it would be like, oh, we, you know, look up pictures of like faces that were just like slightly off. And it can be like the most upsetting thing because you're like, this is just wrong. Like your brain literally keeps telling you that is incorrect. Yeah. Like, there's something wrong with that face. Even if you can't like figure out what it is, like the one with the eyes flipped upside down is sometimes really hard. So your brain knows something is wrong with the face, but you can't figure, figure out what out. is wrong with the face. Yeah. That is crazy. It is really weird. You you segue pretty like nicely into one of mine. So I think I'm just going to jump in there. Like you said that once you learn something or once you know something, then like you just see it all the time. Like it's mm-hmm. just like always there. Well, that's actually has a name. It's called your reticular activating system. And I actually oh, learned this. I actually learned this from my dad and my grandma, my Mimi. And um, so Wait, when they. For, for those of you who, for, the, for our listeners who don't know, can you explain what a Mimi is? My Mimi is my grandma, but she okay. doesn't like to be called grandma. So we call her Mimi. 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 If you listen to Mimi, shout out. You the coolest. <laughs> you the bomb. You the coolest. Um, anyway, so reticular activating system. So my, my family is all real, realtors. Um, and so when they meet with buyers for the first time, um, they tell them, uh, they talk about the reticular activating system. They're like, now you are looking for a home. And so you will see for sale signs, you will have, you know, your, your mm-hmm. phone even does this. Like you will have ads for, yes. for things. Like, I mean, it's just, you will see it everywhere. And I think it's the same thing. Like when you're shopping for cars, you're like, oh, like everyone has a Jeep Cherokee. Yeah. Like, why does everyone have a Jeep, Cher- Jeep Cherokee? And it's like, no, not everyone has a Jeep Cherokee, but your brain is looking for those things because it's like at the top of your mind. Right. I have no idea how it works, but it, it's like a legit thing. And well, this is where the, when you're aware of it, it's like frustrating. Cause you're like, get out of my head. Right. Well, this is where like the whole idea of like confirmation bias comes out of because you have something in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just keep coming back to it because you suddenly you're noticing all the things that like confirm the thing. It's always there. Yeah. So you, yeah. You just keep noticing. It. I'm getting all these signs. It's like, yeah. well, it, it definitely are you? <laughs> is. And it can be like, it can be incredibly frustrating because you're like, I don't want to keep thinking about this, but then in thinking about it, you're like thinking more about it. And it can just be like this, like cycle that you keep putting yourself through. And it can, it can be like really annoying, honestly. No. And I think, I mean, even like, I'm thinking even for like people with trauma, right? Oh, yeah. Like I have, like having this like incident happen and it being really traumatic. And now that's what I think about. And so when I see, or I smell, or I hear something like it's right there, it comes back to me, that memory. Right. And I think sometimes I would, I actually, I don't, I hesitate to say this, but I don't know the research and I've never claimed to be an expert on any of this. So whatever. (laughs) Um, I wonder if part of that whole, the link to trauma is not that because I think a lot of times it's not that this stuff, like we're consciously choosing to think about all the time, especially with trauma, but I wonder part of it is like things like that are just so deeply ingrained in your brain. Like they, they actually rewire your brain that they just become like so easily accessible, right? Like the connections between your sensory input and then those trauma memories 
is such a fast reaction mm-hmm. and it's so accessible that it can happen at like a very unconscious level. So something that something could trigger your trauma, but it can be something that's totally innocuous and you may not even be aware what's going on. But like this whole reticular activating system is like your brain has linked these things to those memories. And now here you are reliving a trauma and you have no idea why. I mean, I mean, it, I, I, my background is psychology, right? So like, I'm thinking of like, when I first learned about like Freud and you have like the unconscious mind and it's like all these different, like crazy compartments that we have not even like, we don't, we can't even understand about our brains. Right. And then you have like these neurologists who are like naming these things and like, you know, can like, Mm -hmm pinpoint different parts of your brain that make you do this and this and this this and it's just I mean just the something that we literally live with that is inside of us that like hardwires everything that we do mm-hmm. like can be like manipulated can be like I mean just I mean it's just it's just insane and like we still have no idea how this works <laughs> right well and it's all it also now that I like I'm wondering if part of it too is like what you start thinking about, you start noticing more, Mm -hmm. which I feel like it has sort of this paradoxical effect where like you, you're becoming hyper-focused, but the thing you're focused on becomes more of like, it takes up more of your attention in your world, like more space in your life. Does that make sense? Where like your scope narrows, but suddenly like that your thing eyes you're focusing on becomes this bigger thing in your in your yeah. like subjective experience, yeah. which is sort of an interesting like paradox if you think about it, and it makes it understandable or makes it more sort of I guess easy to figure out like why somebody can both from the outside feel like you know I could look at them and say you are so hyper focused on this one thing that you're not seeing everything else around you, and they can on you know in the same breath say no, you're looking too broadly. You're not seeing the bigger implications of this one thing. Mm. And it like, we're both coming at it from like different angles and we can both be right. But it's a really, I don't know. That's just like an interesting, as we're talking about it, I'm like, okay, I can see, I can see the implications of something like this and how it can just impact so many different areas of your life. Totally. Totally. Let's move on or we're going to be talking about the brain for the, the reticular activating system. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Well, that actually is, is a nice actually segue into one of mine. Um, my next one, which is kind of a collection of things. Um, but I broadly categorized it as um, why truthing is hard. Um, like the idea of why like believing something that is truth or why telling the truth or why changing your own thoughts in, you know, if you believe something that is a, a false or inaccurate, why it can be hard to change that. Um, I lumped all these things together as just sort of a, like why truthing is hard category. Yeah. Um, and there's a collection of them here. And so, and actually one of them that, that I already touched on is the confirmation bias that, we oftentimes subconsciously or unconsciously notice or believe things that support our own existing thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Like, so it's that idea that like, you know, if you think all Jeeps are red, then you may just start to notice a bunch all of red, red Jeeps. Jeeps. Yeah. And you won't notice all the other colored Jeeps. Yeah. In a bigger picture, like you believe in God. So then right. you're only going to see all the things that, you know, make that real. Right. right? You're only going to notice or believe things that support that belief. Yeah. And maybe, you know, good or bad, not pay attention to things that might challenge that. Right. A little bit. Um, We don't want to be uncomfortable. Yeah. It's, and it is a comfort thing. Mm -hmm. Like, and and that kind of, so another one that we, um, we lean on a lot is called the illusory truth effect which is basically the idea that we believe things that, that are familiar, right? So 100%. Um, that's that one is just, and these are all extremely common and they're not necessarily good or bad, but 
it, it, there are ways of explaining like why, why changing our thoughts and opinions, especially if we believe we are right or we believe that the things we think or believe or feel are, are true. Um, these sort of explain like why it's really hard to change that stuff. Um, so they're confirmation bias, illusory truth effect. We believe things that are familiar to us. Um, the availability heuristic, um, which is the idea that like we think things are more common than they actually are. And then we base our beliefs um, about sort of reality on those things. Um, so a really common one that I actually, um, I, I, so I'm guest speaking in our PE classes at my school on like mental health and mental illness and things like that. And at the very beginning, we do some mental health myth busting. Um, and one of the ones that I, I asked them in there um, is, or I asked them to tell me if they've heard or not, is um, the myth that people with mental illness are more violent or dangerous than others, um, which was a super common belief. Um, and it was often portrayed that way in, you know, movies and TV shows. And um, it was kind of unfortunate that that sort of idea was reinforced when the reality is that not only are they not more dangerous or violent, but that they are actually more likely, 10 times more likely to be the victims of violent crime. Mm -hmm. And so, but the availability heuristic for a long time, we, we had these really accessible narratives or examples and a lot of the sort of beliefs in society were structured around that because those yeah. were the accessible ones totally i mean i'm just thinking of like prejudices and stereotypes and like just the things that we learn in, in media and in, in our culture and in families that that statistically isn't right right but that's like, what we like believe because we don't know any better which like right. is it not an not an excuse, but it, that's like the truth. Right. It's it's and I feel like a lot of times it's things that like parents will tell kids in order to like scare them into behaving. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so like there's these kids who like get to high school and college and they have these like weird. They're like, oh well, this thing, and I'm like, no, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, well, that's what my mom told me. I'm like, no. like my mom. An example. My mom used to tell us when we were little that we shouldn't ever wear socks to bed because then our feet would get moldy and they'd fall off oh my gosh um like our feet would get like just like have all this nasty like bad things would happen to our feet basically and that is i literally hilarious. just read and, and and one of my best friends that i met in college always sleeps with socks on and we had a huge debate one time about this oh and then gosh. i read an article like a couple weeks ago of a doctor talking about how like if you have trouble sleeping, sleeping with socks on can actually improve your sleep. And she did like this whole research study on it. And like, sure enough, I tried it a oh few nights God. because my feet get really cold at night because I think I have bad circulation, which is not relevant. But like, sure enough, like I actually sleep better when I sleep with socks on and like my mind has been blown. <laughs> but that is hilarious. Yeah, but your feet time, haven't fallen off yet. No, I yeah. still have them. You still have them. You're good. I still got them. But it's just that idea. Like, hey, that was an accessible thing. Like, that's just what we always were told. Yeah. So that's what we believed. Totally. Um, and it's not just me. It's my siblings, too. Okay. So I'm not crazy here. <laughs> um, but then the last two, this goes into something you said earlier. It's easier to keep believing something wrong than to change our beliefs, right? Our yeah. brains like consistency. Totally. And so it's, well, it feels it's safe. more comfortable. It yeah. feels safe. Even if we're wrong and even if like logically we can get to the place where we're like, yes, we are wrong, it's easier for our brains and for like our comfort and, and to feel safe and all that to just keep believing something wrong. 100%. Right. Yeah. That's why parents yep. will tell kids like, oh, just let them keep believing in Santa until they grow out of it kind of a thing. It's just easier yeah. um, and more comfortable. Um, and the last one, we often believe things that are true. Um, before trying to find any evidence. So we have this idea that like we hear something and then we try and find evidence and then we decide if we're going to believe it or not. The truth is they've done research on this and they found that more often what happens, especially when it comes to like an emotional decision or something that, that really like hits our hits us in the feels. Yeah. Um, we believe it. We make a, a snap second decision, whether we're going to believe that it's true or not. 
And then afterwards we come back and evaluate whether that's true or not. Like, so I'll yes, you know, and this is all unconscious. Like I'm not aware this is happening, but I'll say, yes, that's true. And then later on I come back and I try and find evidence to support my belief that that thing is true. Yeah. Right. But we have this idea a lot of the times that it's no, we try to find evidence and then we decide, but that's not actually what happens most of the time. Right. So makes a lot of sense. That's my little rundown of why truthing is hard. And there's a lot of other reasons, but those are just the the ones I hit on because they were I found interesting. Super interesting. Makes you reflect and think a lot. Lots of thinking. Yeah. So you hit a couple of points. We've mentioned like subconscious, unconscious a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of like my next one is just like not just subconscious and unconscious, but but dreams and memories and how like our memories, the way that we view the world, the how we want the world to be viewed, like mm-hmm. just all of the things that we have like come out then like subconsciously, consciously, unconsciously in our dreams. And yeah. I mean, there's so much, so many things that you've been told, right. About like, well, you can't create a face. So like all the faces that you see in dreams are people that you've actually met, even if like, they look like a stranger, like you've seen them on a street or something before. Like, yeah. I mean, there's like crazy things like that. Like just the, again, just the power of our brains, how our brains can store information pocket it away and then like replay it back and i mm-hmm. my my mental image of this is from the movie um oh my gosh no, i can't remember what it's called <laughs> it's the one with all the emotions inside out inside out yes thank you i am sadness yes yes well no what <laughs> <laughs> my friends in college as soon as that movie came out they were like kendall you are sadness Oh my gosh. And I was like, you guys are dumb. And then I watched it and I was like, guys, I am sadness. Oh my goodness. You're Phyllis from the office. I'm well, okay. I don't <laughs> I don't know anyway, if I'd go there, but anyway, I understand what you mean. So so in Inside Out the movie, the they literally have like dream, like dreamland, right? So it's where they do this like skit um and put put it like on a TV screen, and that's yeah, what you're like thinking of that yeah. night. And and it's it kind of blows your mind when you really think about it. Cause like your brain is literally firing this unconscious, un- like not realistic, like just reality though in your brain. And only yeah. you are able to like process it and be aware of it or not be aware of it. And right. just like how that works. I mean, it's just freaking fascinating. Like that we do that. And then we wake up and we remember them or we don't remember them. Do we dream every night and never remember them? Do we dream some nights? Like, I mean, it's just, it, it just blows my mind about dreams. I freaking crazy. (laughs) So two things, number one, it just occurred to me and I don't know if this is true, but it feels right. But I always, I I don't rely on my feelings as a reliable source of, of accurate information. So I'll just preface it with that. Um, but as you were talking, I was like, okay, so I'm getting the feeling that dreams may be the only, if not one of the only closed loop psychological experiences that we have as human beings. If that makes sense. Like if you, I don't know if that makes sense, but like it is one of the only things that we go through as human beings in our entire life that is completely our own and is not, like impacted yes we dream about other things and we dream about our own experiences we dream about people like all this stuff but the actual experience itself process itself of dreaming is not it's not impacted by anything else that's going on in that moment whereas almost every other everything else we do as human beings is impacted by our environment what's going on around us in that exact moment like our, our surroundings, like the social stuff. Like yeah, you're talking things. like in the here and now because yes. yeah, like because yeah, because your dreams, you're you're taking in, you're processing all the world around you, and then you're storing it, and then it's like coming up in your dreams. Yes. So, yeah. but then, in, but in that moment while you are dreaming, there's nothing. Like, I mean, there's no input. Yeah, and I mean, no I've I've input. had dreams where I like feel like I'm just screaming, and I wake up and I'm like, did, did, was I screaming? 
right or the falling <laughs> like, like nobody came to like, like so i must have not have been like it but it feels so real it feels like it's happening in real time and that's yes you I mean, you are having this very what feels like a very real experience mm-hmm. even if it's completely fabricated for you it is a very real thing that's happening that only that you are aware of only you experience and there's no yeah. like, like i said there's no other there's no other input in that moment. It's just whatever is in your head is the thing that's fueling your dream. And it's it, the, the process of dream. Like my goal is to read Freud's like dream analysis book. That's too much. Look, <laughs> I, I, I have a healthy appreciation. For I'll get Freud there. I'll point, get there but, one day. No, Um, but it's just, it just fascinates me. And then the yeah. way that we like store memory, the way that like, we can't like that trauma like can't be processed like is unprocessed memory like it's just I mean it's just freaking fascinating how our brain processes things and then it like comes out in dreams and comes out in like like projections and like transference and kind of I mean just like just it's just freaking crazy it's just freaking crazy our brains are are wacky yo wacky yo my next one's about brains too because I just can't but you you go first (laughs) oh I'll add real quick before I move on that I only remember maybe one dream I've ever had in my entire life. I don't See, remember that, my dreams. That's another thing. Like I have super, super vivid dreams and probably at least once a week we'll have like a ridiculously vivid dream. Well, and I remember and being people told, like you like don't have dreams ever. Like, well, and I remember being told, I forget who it was by. I feel like it was a professor in either undergrad or maybe it was in graduate school. I can't remember um, who was very sort of like Freudian was also fascinated by dreams. And she or he, I don't remember who, um, was like, oh yes, dreams. Like everybody dreams every single night. You, if you don't, then you just don't remember them. And Which I was like, what? frustrating. Like I, like that's like frustrating. But I want to remember. remember dream. Like you I've don't always want to remember. No, I do want. Like I want to know what yeah. they want in my dreams. Yeah, and that's what's frustrating. It's like because it's so subconscious that you're not, you're not aware. But then, like, what what turns that switch? Like, what makes it? Like, when, then why do you remember some? And not, I mean, just I mean, I have so it many. It is questions. fascinating. Yeah, it is I crazy. Have so many questions. <laughs> my other big one, my gripe, and this is more of a personal thing, that I just felt like I was missing out on some experience. Maybe this is something about me. Um, was I knew a guy in college who could lucid dream and he could control what was going on in his dreams. I've done and that before. It's terrifying. Somebody was like. I remember somebody asked him at one point, like, oh, so like, is it just like a, like every once in a while you feel like he's like, no, I can just do it whenever I want. He's like, I could be in the middle of a dream and then just decide I want to control what's happening now. And I remember looking at him like, are you insane? Are you magical? Are you a wizard? What's happening? (laughs) But I've done it one time and I didn't mean to, and it scared the hell out of me because I couldn't, I didn't realize that I was doing it. So I didn't realize that I was asleep. And so then I like couldn't wake myself up. It was it was freaking scary. I've never done it. The worst thing I've or the most crazy thing I used to sleepwalk all the time, like and crazy, like take showers in my sleep, and then just like fall asleep in the tub while the shower <laughs> was running. And then I used there was one time I I sleepwalked. I must have gone downstairs. I must have showered gotten ready for school i was younger i was probably in like maybe fourth grade or fifth grade showered got ready for school and this is all at like 3 a.m mind you um showered got ready for school gone downstairs made myself breakfast like made myself eggs oh my goodness and so that's scary you operate like a a full a full morning routine and then gone back upstairs and gone back to bed and i didn't know any of it had happened until i got up for real and went downstairs and my mom was like did you get up super early or something and I said no and she's like well I came down here and there was just like a plate of scrambled eggs on the counter like somebody must have come down here and they were cold so they must have been sitting here for a while I was like what the heck and then I realized like my clothes for the day were like in a pile next to my bed and it was a whole thing I was like oh my gosh it was a weird that was a weird time but anyway that's, okay yeah, that's freaky oh I used to sleep like constantly you're unaware of the actual movement that is happening. Out That's the other thing. Like outside of your brain. Like I, I forget. Mean, there's oh, a, gosh. there's a part of your brain. Um, I think it's in your brainstem or something. Maybe it's your whatever cerebellum. I can't remember what that's not your brainstem, but either way, 
there's a part of your brain that's supposed to like deactivate or activate or whatever. So that like your body is physically paralyzed while you dream, because otherwise you will do things like while you sleep. That's why people who like wake up and they can't move. It's just that part of your brain hasn't switched off yet. Um, but if that doesn't get switched off, then you can actually do things in your sleep. That's why people who were like Ambien, they, people have Ambien stories. And it's because that Ambien can interfere with that part of your brain. And so it doesn't turn on when you fall asleep. And so people will go do really weird things when they're on Ambien. And then they'll tell you stories about them because they hear for other people who are like, I was screaming at you and you wouldn't like, you, you would just weren't responding. <laughs> like it's crazy. So ask all your, your brain. Uh, the brain, man. The brain, just the brain. Um, well, okay. We're getting like really chatty, which I knew was going to happen. I know we're going to fly through passionate people, but let's, let's just do one more and then we'll do a second favorite things. How about okay. That? We'll do, we'll do our top three today and then we'll okay. do a, a, an almost top three <laughs> almost top three next time <laughs> um okay so my last one for today is and this is where a lot of stuff started in college for me was empathy mm. um really it started with shame but then quickly morphed into especially in graduate school empathy and i got really especially last year i got really into empathy and understanding like okay what the heck is empathy yeah. Um, and like, how does it even work? Um, because you know, they have, there's this whole idea of like, you can go super sort of biologically based and talk about mirror neurons and how like we are biologically hardwired to recognize, um, the expressions and the nonverbal cues and, you know, the things in other people and to mirror them and to reflect them back. Um, which I didn't know this apparently, that mirror neurons, we talk about them all the time as if it's like a done deal, but apparently they're still being debated as if like they exist. <laughs> yeah. There's still people who the debate about whether or not mirror neurons actually exist is still happening, but we constantly refer to them as if they're a thing. totally are real, which Wild. is a separate conversation. But I found that interesting. Um, or like, but then there's, I mean, there's social learning theory and there's people like empathy not only is like something you experience it's also like a skill you have to learn mm -hmm. um and it's it is sort of one of those fundamental building blocks of like human connection and relationship and like people who completely lack empathy are are unable to have meaningful human relationships and connections in the way that we typically think about them um, which, Powerful. you know, and this is, this is different than like struggling with social cues, right? Like, yeah, that a lack of empathy is different than, you know, like, for example, uh, uh, some, an individual who might be on the autism spectrum, they may struggle with understanding social cues, but that is wildly different than somebody who lacks empathy. Yeah. Like, cause there, there are people, um, you know, my sister works with people who are on the autism spectrum a lot and she has, you know, clients that are extremely empathetic or empathic. I still can't figure out which one it is. Is it empathic or empathetic? I think it's empathic. Empathic. She has clients who are extremely empathic and extremely in tune with how people feel, but they don't understand the social cues. They don't understand the body language. They don't understand how to communicate that empathy. Yeah. In, in ways that are meaningful or helpful or um, sort of advantageous or adaptive. Um, but they, they absolutely have empathy. Whereas yeah. somebody who lacks empathy can look at somebody who's suffering and just say, eh, whatever, like they don't care mm -hmm. um, or they don't, they don't experience it. They might care. It's not, it's not, well, yeah, not that they don't care, but they don't, they can't, they can't care. Like they don't, like they, they can't put themselves the, in that place and yeah. they might care, but only, you know, for example, they might not care that you're suffering, but they might care that, hey, you're suffering and it's annoying me, mm -hmm. right? It's inconveniencing me that you're suffering. And so yeah. let's stop this. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so it's just that kind of a thing where I'm like, okay, well, then empathy is far more complicated. And then there's, you know, all this conversation around like different kinds of empathy. And I remember reading, uh, reading, <laughs> who reads? I listened to an audiobook. Um, that was recommended to us by a professor um, in grad school. And it was called, 
um, Against Empathy. It's by Dr. Paul Bloom, who's a psychologist at, I want to say Harvard or Yale. Um, I think he's at Ivy League school. <laughs> yeah, fancy pants, yes. hair suspenders type school. Um, I don't know. Suspenders always seem fancy to me. Too cool for belts. We wear suspenders yeah, here. Like they just, everybody has round glasses that they don't actually need. Um, but he, he basically talks about like, Hey, this thing that everybody refers to as empathy, um, like the healthy kind of empathy he calls cognitive empathy where like, you know, in my head, I can put myself in, in your shoes and logically or, or sort of cognitively understand what your experience is like. But he argues a lot that like, if I were to try to feel what you feel that is actually not helpful for you because yeah. to some degree I need to not like if you are would go back to suffering if if you are suffering and I try to have that kind of empathy which I think he calls emotional empathy or something like that he's like if I do that if I go that route and you're suffering and I have this emotional empathy with you well now I'm suffering too and now we both need help Mm-hmm. right? Like if, if you see somebody drowning in a lake and you say, I want to empathize with that person and you say, okay, well, in order to empathize, I need to know exactly what it's like to be drowning. I need to experience that. And then you go out there and you also start drowning. Yeah. Well, now there's two people drowning and both need help. No one's, no one's helping. Yeah. Right. But if I say, oh, he's drowning, I can imagine how scary and horrible that must be. I need to help you. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm more motivated to actually find a solution and, and try and help you out versus trying to really understand and put myself in your swim trunks and, and understand <laughs> really what it's like to be on the verge of fading into blackness. You know, like, yeah, he's like, yeah, there, there are healthy like, ways of experiencing empathy and then there are yeah. unhealthy. Um, and yeah. one of the things and he it- talks about in relation to that is as human beings, we often care far more about a small problem of one person that we care a lot about than the suffering of thousands of people. Like there's thousands of people around the world suffering that we never think about. But, you know, I think all the time about like a family member who's going through something really difficult, but that's one person right? versus the thousands or millions of people who are experiencing intense suffering all the time. Yeah. I think this, as I think mine, my next one's really similar. It's, it's relational suffering. And I think like, like what you're saying, like when I have a relationship with someone, when that person knows me is understand the things that I'm going through, maybe we've already gone through similar experiences. We've already discussed what it was like to grow up like that, or what it was like to have this teacher together or what it, what it was like to be friends with this person. who was really toxic or whatever that mm-hmm. connection pieces. It's, it's easier to be empathetic when you, when you have that connection, when you are already, or when it's easier to imagine the pain. Right. Right. Like I've had a really toxic relationship. And so like when, when women come into my office and they can talk about their abusive relationship or their really toxic boyfriend, I'm like, girl, I get it. Like, you know, and I, I see, I can imagine, oh, and I can bring up some of that pain of my own, um, Mm -hmm. to, to empathize with them and, and to process that with them. Um, and I think, I think that can be really powerful. And, and then uh, because I've had that pain, I feel like I can also communicate with people who are suffering in different ways, just because I have felt pain, I have felt suffering. And I know what that feels like, even if their pain is completely, from a completely different part, like a completely different like scenario, like they're experiencing suffering differently than I am, or they're experiencing something differently than me, but we're both, we both have experienced suffering. Right. Um, And I'm not like that. I, not that what I've experienced is exactly like everyone else experienced, but just that I know what it's like to feel pain. I know what it's like to have suffered. Um, and so I can, I can imagine what it could be like in their shoes. Well, and, and that's, that so, that's, I feel like opens like, your hearts for it's, that's a big cornerstone 
of like mental health treatment, mental illness Mm -hmm. treatment is that like, I don't need to have autism or I don't need to have schizophrenia or I don't need to have, you know, bipolar disorder in order to work with somebody who might have one of those things. 100%. Because to some degree, I, I can, they, they can talk about really difficult experiences and in a way I can pull from my own life yeah. and say, well, I've never felt that, but I remember a time in my life when I felt something that, that sounds like it might have been similar Yes, and I can use that to, to fuel our, our relationship. And obviously that doesn't necessarily mean jump straight to like tons of self-disclosure, but it, it can help you as the, the, the therapist um, or the counselor or whatever, like put yourself in, in a client's shoes or a student's shoes a little bit and say, oh, wow. Okay. I remember a time when I had something like that happen in my life Completely. and it wasn't that exact thing, but like yeah. you were saying, like I, I have suffered in my life, but I don't have to have gone through all of the suffering that everybody I'm ever going to work with has gone through in order to be able to look at them and say, wow, that sounds like it was so hard for you. Yeah. That was really scary. That was really, yeah, that was really hard. That was terrible. You know, like, I mean, you can, you can find these words to help them process because like, I've been terrified. I've been scared. Mm -hmm. I've been sad. I've been emotional. I've been crazy. I've been, you know, stressed. I've been angry. I, you know, I can pull from each of those places and, and connect somewhere on that level. And that's why I think like group therapy is, can be so powerful, right? Like you get, people and usually people who have a similar uh, suffering or a similar goal, mm-hmm. um, who, who can find that connection, who can discuss what it's like to sit in this grief and this suffering in this processing in this change, whatever that may look like for that session, but mm-hmm. to sit with those people who are feeling the same way you feel. And, and there's a saying like misery loves company, but th- I think that can be really powerful. Yeah. Like, I, I really do like just that if you find someone, if you can normalize something, you don't feel alone. Mm-hmm. There's power in that, that I'm not alone in this. Other people have, have, have done this. Other people have gotten through this. Other people have, right. other people are feeling this with me. Right. I mean, I think, I think that just is one of the most powerful things that us as relational beings can do for each other. Right. We we are. And I, I agree. Like it's one thing and not that I obviously like we're both very big proponents of like therapy and, and, you know, seeing a therapist if, if you need to, but it's one thing to sit in a room with a therapist and have one person show you empathy and, and talk to you about like, you know, your experience and, and give you that space to do that. It's another thing entirely to sit in a room with a therapist and like 10 other people who were all going through a very similar thing as you Yeah. and to hear the stories of others as right. they share their lives and their experiences and to really like, because I can talk with a student or I can talk with a client and say, Hey, like, you know, we normalize. That's a huge thing we do, especially early on is we normalize things for people and help them understand, Hey, this thing you're going through, isn't that weird. It's not out of like, people go through this stuff all the time, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with kids because they constantly feel like they're like they're the spotlight on them and they're totally Totally. isolated and what's going on. And and, and so we normalize a lot, but it's again, it's one thing for a therapist to, to try and normalize something for you. It's another to sit in a room with a bunch of people who are all saying the same thing over and over and over again and to actually realize, oh my gosh, you mean there are actually other people out there? Yeah. Like, Someone literally next to you saying something that you are too afraid to say mm-hmm. and you're like, oh my gosh, they said it and nothing bad happened to them. Right. Like, and, and they said it and they're okay. And, and they say it and, and they, and they believe it like, oh my gosh, like I believe that too. And then like, you can stand on your own feet mm-hmm. even stronger because you're looking at people around you. I mean, like, I, I'm not different. I'm, this isn't, you know, this is okay. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to sit with tension with whatever is going on and, and to know that like other people feel this way. And I, 
I think like what you're saying, like normalizing stuff, I, I, I love, like, I think that's like always my go-to, especially in school. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, it's like, you're not the only senior that's been in my office freaking out about graduating. Like, yeah. it's, like it, you're, you're not alone in this. And I, but I do think that there's like a, a really fine line mm-hmm. between like, oh, you're not the only one. Like, you're fine. Get yeah. back out there, kid. Like, I think, I think there's a little bit, you know, really, the, really having to like pour that empathy in there, like you know I'm, I'm about to graduate too and yeah it sucks like we're well and it's there. it's that thing of you know, like bringing that, bringing that home you're not the only one doesn't by default also mean i don't care right or that what you're talking about isn't important mm-hmm. right it's it, you know that's it's why things like you know Al-Anon or narconon can be so powerful because not only are you like sitting in a room with people who are going through the same thing you are and, and learning, okay, there's, I, I am not alone and maybe what's happening in my life isn't okay, but I have people around me who are also struggling and we can hold each other up and hold each other accountable. But you also get people in, in Twitter groups like that, that have been in your shoes and have, yes. you know, you get to hear their stories and you get to hear about how far they've come and, you get to look at them and say, Oh, wow. Like, so you've been where I am, but look at you and, and you, you know, turn things around for yourself. And, and so, you know, it it can kind of highlight like possibilities and because, you know, sometimes when you're in places that are so dark, you don't, you don't know that there are possibilities or you don't believe that there are possibilities. And and that's kind of one of the things that groups can really do is make you see that stuff. Hope. Um, Hope is yeah. so powerful. It can really give you that hope. Yeah. Um, well, okay. we obviously are very passionate about what we do and about what we learn about and yes. about what we want to talk about. We thought um, top five was going to be uh, nice and quick and easy, <laughs> and we barely got through our top three. Top three. <laughs> so we will wrap up our top five next time. Favorite uh, things, part two. <laughs> favorite things, part two. So. Thank you guys for joining us and listening. Um, as always, feel free to go follow us on Instagram at probably therapy. Send in any requests. Um, you can DM us or sh- uh, shoot us an email at probablytherapy at gmail.com. If there are things that you would like us to talk about, um, please go rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And we love you guys. Bye-bye.